And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. Hopefully, you guys had a terrific weekend. A great show for you today. I was joined by my friend Jim Garrity from National Review. Always a great time talking to Jim. Uh, we discussed the latest goings-on over at Twitter, the unbanning of Donald Trump's account, and the meltdown uh, across uh, the sphere of journalism. Uh, we did a little bit of recap of the midterms once again and discussed who should shoulder most of the blame for uh, the, the failures of the GOP. Um, and we previewed 2024. We talked uh, Trump versus DeSantis. We talked about the delusion of some of these other Republicans who have recently teased presidential runs. And oh, We covered a lot. I think you guys will enjoy it. Before we get to Jim, guys, if you haven't already, please follow us on Twitter at No Gimmicks Pod. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Make sure to subscribe. If you are an Apple user, please take a few seconds to leave us a five-star rating and a good review. I'd really appreciate that. And if you like the show and want to get involved, you can support us monthly over on Patreon, patreon.com slash the No Gimmicks Podcast. All right, without further ado, the great Jim Garrity. All right, guys, we're here at the great Jim Garrity. Jim, how you been, man? Brady, it is good to see you. I, I am glad that uh, we get to chat a little bit before Thanksgiving. I am not phenomenally depressed merely because of the Jets or merely because of the midterm. This is the time of year to be thankful for, and I still have a lot to be thankful for. But uh, yeah, November did not quite shake out the way I was hoping. Hey, I mean, you're going into Thanksgiving and the Jets are six and four. I mean, the you know, the game, True. the disastrous True. game yesterday, notwithstanding six and four at Thanksgiving is I mean, you'll take it. I'm sure that is the first thing I can be thankful for. Yes. Besides, <laughs> besides family and friends and good health and all those other things that are important to be thankful for. Yeah. You know, it's a better than expected year. But uh, no, yeah, this is this is a, you know, usually this is a time of year you feel kind of a winding down of politics. And we right. have not had that at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was the hoping, last week or two. I was hoping for a week off of election season. You know, like we had to go through the midterms. Give me a week. Mm-hmm. And then Trump immediately declares he's running for president. Yeah. And, and now, here we go. Now we're already on to November 2024. No break. Yeah. No break for the weary. You know, I'd, boy, oh boy. So, yeah, say so back in the like late 2006, I was still living over in Turkey. And I was talking with National Review about coming back, and I said, they you know, basically said, we love what you did with the carry spot. Why don't you come back and do it for us? And I was be- going to begin in January 2007. And I wasn't going to come back from Turkey until March 2007. I could still work, you know, right. uh, remotely. But I thought I was pulling a fast one on National Review. That basically, ah, that's silly. Nobody's going to be getting done that early. I'd be, you know, beginning the campaign beat before anything <laughs> was happening. Well, in January 2007... Obama announced, Hillary announced, Joe Biden announced, which was not a big deal then. But, you know, obviously Joe Biden did go on to bigger things in life. Uh, John Edwards announced the presidential campaign began in January 2007. And everybody's reaction was, oh, my God, this is so phenomenally early. Yeah. Here we are in November. Trump has announced literally they haven't finished counting the the votes in California. They haven't. They still have a runoff in Georgia. And we are literally beginning 2024 cycle before the 2022 cycle is over. You know, I know that God is good, but, uh, you know, it makes, it, makes it, 
<laughs> if anything would make you question that, it's it's the fact that we have to talk uh, about 2024 already. I, I'm I'm kidding, yeah. obviously. But we let's start with Twitter. I I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but we have to because it's what everybody's talking about. Yeah. I don't want to spend too much time on it because less than 20% of Americans even have a Twitter account, and maybe a quarter of those people actually actively post on Twitter every day like you and I do. Um, it's important for guys like us, obviously, if you work in politics, you kind of have to be on Twitter. Um, but to your average voter in Virginia or Ohio, not so much. I mean, the, the mm-hmm. what's happening on Twitter and Elon Musk, I, I doubt most people even know about this or, or even, you know, they just throw it out. I mean, it's not important to your average voter. Um, but the reaction to, to Musk unbanning Donald Trump's account is hilarious to me for a bunch of different reasons. Mm. First, the left is censorious because censorship works i mean they they used censorship to their advantage most notably in in 2020 um exit polls suggested that it's very likely if the democrats weren't able to enlist the tech companies to censor the hunter biden story joe biden probably doesn't win that election and the fact that they can't do that anymore at least on twitter scares them and it should i mean i guess it should scare them because censorship has been an important part of their their strategy their their campaign strategy um, so I think that is important to note, and it, it is kind of telling to see the meltdown. It's it's not because they actually think mm-hmm. Donald Trump's tweets will get people killed or whatever they're saying. It's it's because they can't use this censorship as a strategy in the next election. Yeah, and I kind of wonder how much of this is the flip side of censorship, which is promotion or amplification of particular stories and narratives. Right. Um. You know, I don't want to. I can't talk out of school, but I can say that. The amount of web traffic that I see for my stuff at National Review on Twitter has never been a ton. I, I, you know, every morning I'll put out either at least one tweet, usually a, a little bit of a thread, but I don't see a lot, a ton of people clicking through and actually reading on the National Review site, which is, you know, eh, okay, you know, a little frustrating, but that's the way it is. Yeah. The way folks on the left are talking about, I, I've heard a rumor that actually. For stuff, you know, for, for a left publication or mainstream media publication, Twitter is a huge place of getting audience. So that kind of makes folks on the right suspect, hmm, am I being shadow banned? Am I, right. I have X number of followers, but are only a small fraction of that seeing that amount, that link or that, you know, that tweet on any given day. The reason they call it shadow banning is this sneaking suspicion that you can't prove it, but your engagement numbers seem much lower than they, you'd expect them to be considering the size of the overall audience. Um, Twitter's trending topics, those little, you know, hashtags or things that they have chosen. Hey, this is what's going on. It seems interesting. One, not only has always been heavily skewed towards stories that would promote Democrats and make Republicans look stupid. Not that Republicans need that much help in looking stupid, but nonetheless, it's kind of like, you know, Hey, this is, you know, this has always been, um, generally the wording that is, you know, the worst possible, uh, phrasing or, or making it looking as bad as possible for Republicans. You know, they act like liberal journalists are acting like losing control of Twitter is enormously consequential, not just for their self-esteem and feeling important and having a blue check, but also like, oh, their audience is going to suffer. That maybe their revenue model depends upon a great deal of engagement on Twitter, which is surprising. Us us in conservative land are kind of like, well, you know, it it, it gets some, but it's not, uh, you know, it, it could never, you could never run a business based on Twitter engagement if you're conservative. Right. Maybe it is for the left. Maybe it is a much bigger deal for them. So in that case, yeah, maybe they have a good reason to freak out about Elon Musk making these kinds of decisions and stuff. And as for Trump going on, I mean, one of the things – so on the one hand, you could say since Trump moved over to Truth Social, I feel like I hear about what he says much less. Now, yeah. it's creeped up a bit in the last couple of weeks or months. 
And, you know, Elon Musk, a couple of his last tweets were joking about how tempted Trump must be to come back to Twitter. And I kind of wonder if that, Trump, that, again, so, yeah, it's got to be self-control has never been his forte. But <laughs> you know, like, it's never I been the, the strong suit. I don't know if Trump fans understand that Trump would be wise if you want Trump to win and be the nominee. You should encourage him to avoid Twitter. Like, I, I, I think yeah. being banned from social media is why Trump's approval rating is in the 40s and not the 30s right now. I, I don't think that. Trump going off half cocked all over the internet is going to help him win back suburban white yeah. women. <laughs> like I hate to, hate to tell you, again, I know, you know there's also the fact that Trump, yeah, Trump tried to try to create or is trying to create his his own alternative to it, Truth Social. And when Trump says something sufficiently controversial on Truth Social, desanctimonious, young kin sounds Chinese, etc., everybody takes a screenshot of that on Truth Social and then puts yeah. it on Twitter. So yeah. that message still gets out there. To, I yeah. imagine roughly the same audience. But there's something, you know, I, I in a very strange way, Elon Musk is trying to get Trump to sabotage his own investment in Truth Social. Right. And that it'll be very interesting to watch that over the weeks and months to come to see if Trump can resist that or whether he misses his old Twitter audience. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you what, deciding with, with the trending topics on Twitter, the, the best firing by Elon Musk so far is, is firing the guy who would yeah. write those stupid blurbs. In the trend, you know, yes. it's like it's like people discuss Republican who is evil, debating mm. Democrat who is good. <laughs> and that's like the yeah. It's like God, it, you're not even yeah. trying. It's so lazy. It, that is that is only you know. the mildest of exaggerations. <laughs> and, and one of the things that's kind of you know bizarre about this is that from the very beginning, there's always been this question of, you know, is a social media company like a media company? Are they an editor? Are they responsible for what gets posted on it? And from, you know, you go back to probably like the 2000s. Right. All these social media companies had the slogan of, look, we're not a media company. We're just allowing the world to speak to each other. And they created that platform. And then they looked at what the world was saying to each other and said, ah, oh, oh, my God, that's terrible stuff. You know, not just, you know, political things, but, um, you know. Sexual exploitation and, right. uh, you know, drug dealers, you know, things you neo-Nazis, things you genuinely have a, you know, a broad swath of the population would have a problem with, not merely, you know, politically controversial one way or the other. Yeah. And so all of a sudden they kind of had to become editors. They had to become media companies deciding what was appropriate and what was not appropriate. And once they, once they opened that door, well, then it just kind of kept creeping and kept creeping and kept creeping. And it became, well, you took off the neo-Nazis, so you should take off this person who's uh, using the wrong pronouns or, you know, doing something else that offends the left a great deal. Um, I think I, th I, I, I think you're right about that. But I, I also think that the people in charge of these companies, um, you know, like we, we, we make fun of, uh, you know, celebrities and, and these these powerful people who will. They'll vote for like a socialist, like Bernie Sanders, but they're these rich capitalist billionaires or whatever, multimillionaires at least. And I, I think it got to the point in the last few years where these powerful people um, started putting their money where their mouth is in terms of hating capitalism. I, I think that they they hmm. moved past capitalism. I think a lot of these people were running companies in the from this position of post capitalism. You saw it with CNN, right? With uh, who, who's the the feller who ran CNN who they just fired. Um, oh, Zucker. Zucker. Yeah. He Zucker. was making decisions specifically to help Democrats win elections, not to make money. Like you don't if you if you're trying to be profitable, you don't keep Brian Stelter on the air for 10 years or whatever. It, it, you're not going to make money. You're not going to sell ads doing that. See, Disney, they're they're making films specifically 
to promote like trans propaganda. Like it's not like you're not yeah. gonna you're not gonna make a Star Wars movie into this like woke feminist nonsense and make money. Like you're going to lose money on that. Yeah. Nobody want there's no market for this. Nobody wants it. But so like they're making these decisions and like you know Twitter banning people. It's like you're just you're specifically trying to help Democrats win elections. Like you're you're not even. I, I think we've really reached a point, and hopefully, we're, you know, this will be scaled back in the coming months and years. But I I do think these people were, they they weren't even thinking about their share shareholders. I I don't think they were thinking about profit. They were just thinking mm-hmm. about political power and helping their preferred political party. That's like the institutions they run. They believed were too big to fail. To use right. a you know infamous phrase of, of recent years. It's funny you mentioned Disney because today's morning jolt, as I imagine you've heard and probably a bunch of the listeners of this podcast have heard, they replaced Bob Chapek, who had been the new the CEO yep. who had been in place for a bit about a bit more than two years, and went back to Robert Iger, who yeah. had become an increasingly outspoken guy who had you know argued with Trump publicly a whole bunch. Robert Iger was a you know pretty outspoken progressive. I don't think you'd say Bob, uh, Bob Chapek was a conservative, but I do think Chapek wanted to back away from all of these hot button political social issues. Um, he did eventually get dragged into the uh, Parents' Rights and Education Bill, yep. aka Don't Say Gay. But you could tell he really didn't initially want to and was only kind of forced to by this employee uprising. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you just look at the interviews. He, he just has a different style than Robert Iger, who Robert Iger would say, I believe, you know, this type of law is not consistent with Disney values, right. et cetera, et cetera. Whereas, you know, Chopic was just trying to avoid, you know, I think Chopic just wanted to run a company and make money. Well, the board of directors, like five months after giving Chopic an extension for, for a couple more years, changed their mind and went back to Iger. I don't think this is a purely political point. You, you know, as I lay out in today's newsletter, Disney Plus is not doing great financially. They're, they're picking up subscribers, but the amount of money it takes to create adorable baby Yoda and all the other stuff in their programming, like they lost like one and a half billion in three months. Yeah. And that's when they were adding subscribers. So like yeah. there's a financial argument to say, hey, this guy Chopic's not getting it done. Let's go back to the guy who, you know, ran us during our glory years. But I also think Chapik's position left him without many – in terms of politics, in terms of trying to be relatively apolitical. And by the, I'm sure there's some listeners out there who can point to things that Chapik did that were kind of lefty. Not disputing that. I'm just saying compared to Iger, right. he was less outspoken, less woke. Um, I think there are a bunch of folks on the board of directors who either believe that you know Iger's better financially and thus the, pro- the politics are worth it or – feel like Iger being the outspoken progressive creates less internal dissent from the woke employees that makes it worthwhile. So I think if you're on the conservative and you'd like to see businesses, particularly big ones like Disney that have a great deal of cultural and social influence, if you want them to be less woke, I think today's a little bit of a disappointment. I think Chapek wanted to steer things in the direction we would have preferred, and he's out. And Iger, you know, he's probably not going to be, he's old, he's getting up there in years, he's not going to be on there for a long time. But I think for the next two or three years, I'd be surprised if you didn't see Disney be a little more outspoken on every cultural hot button issue that comes down the pike. Yeah. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. And just going back to the, the Twitter fiasco just mm-hmm. briefly, um, I was having a discussion on the podcast last week with my buddy Andrew Donaldson, and, and we're talking about just the, the general state of American journalism, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. right? And we were talking about just the types of people who are drawn nowadays to the profession of journalism the type of people that go to j school obviously there's exceptions there's embedded war journalists there's investigative journalists there's good people out there i understand that don't want to paint with too broad of a brush but most of these people are 
kind of the same person. It's, it's the wealthy, white, privileged liberal from the coasts. It's just Taylor Lorenz, but thousands of her mm-hmm. <laughs> everywhere. Okay, every journalism school, it's just a bunch of Taylor Lorenz, folks that have never faced any kind of adversity in their lives. Their parents paid for their college. They grew up in a a, a McMansion somewhere. It, 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 they're just they're not a part of normal American life, you know. And, and that's how you get every American journalist this weekend tweeting like their lives depended on it about how Trump's Twitter account will get people killed. Right. Right. Okay. It's like it's 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 so it's like the end of the world for these people when there's like there's a war in Ukraine. There's a war in Yemen. There's mm-hmm. we're heading towards double digit inflation. Okay. Like Europe is going to run out of fuel to heat their homes this winter. There's a uprising against the murderous Iranian regime. Nobody has any money in their savings accounts anymore. And and it's like if corporate media wants to know why everyone despises them and mocks them, look no further than the last 24 hours, 48 hours on Twitter when every journalist in the world, if honest to goodness, has convinced themselves that Donald Trump's Twitter account is the most important thing going on. Yeah. Now, Brady, before we go any further, I should be, you may have noticed I'm writing a little more regularly for the Washington Post. And when I you know, had my Taylor chats Lorenz. with them, uh, yes. Insert a different name. Taylor Lorenz <laughs> is the finest human being I've ever, I got, no. Uh, let's just say I'm, I, I will not critique anybody at the Washington right. Post for Sorry the foreseeable future. It's one of the things I kind of felt like I had to give up if I was going to write for the Post. Fair. So I'll just let listeners draw their own conclusions on that one. But that generally having been said, look, for a long time, I don't know if it's still this way now, but for a long time, journalism had the lowest starting salaries of any profession. Right. Generally, you were working as either an unpaid intern or as a barely paid intern, you know, and your first couple gigs in that newsroom uh, newsrooms, of course, are having massive layoffs and you're seeing small newspapers close down across the country. <clears throat> but generally, you had to either be uh, financially self-sufficient. Uh, I suppose you could, you know, there were, there were stretches where my wife was definitely contributing a great deal more to our household income than I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had to be willing to, you know, not quite starve, but to go through really lean years to start your career. Yeah. If you didn't know someone who was going to start you out at a decent gig. You know, and that, that was one of the things that, Generally, people of a more privileged background are going to be or people who are willing to, you know, uh, people who love it and who couldn't see themselves doing anything else. Right. Those were the kinds of two people you were going to get in that profession, which understandably is going to have, you're going to have fewer minorities. You're going to have fewer people from less privileged backgrounds entering the profession when that is the starting circumstance for, for this. Um, I don't know if journalism ever as a profession or as an industry ever really figured out how to fix it. In fact, I think it went in the opposite direction with greater instability than ever. And by the way, I kind of noticed that like um, it wasn't that, you know, you and I, I you're, you're I think you're a little younger than me. But like we could remember when Vox was the the hot new thing. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Vox lost a whole bunch of writers, the, the Matt Iglesias, the Ezra Klein, the founders, really, who went on to other publications. Um, you know, there was a time when BuzzFeed was the next hot new thing. And almost all of these companies have gone. I, they're still around. They still have some good people working for them. I don't necessarily mean to, you know, poop on all of them, but just kind of observing that there's like a great deal of churn in a, in a lot of journalism. So there's, in addition to everything else, there's not a great deal of stability. Right. Which kind of, you know, so if you could do it, why wouldn't you go to work in public relations? Why wouldn't you go to work in some other form of communications work instead of journalism? Which I think means the people who are left are the ones who either, you know, for whatever reason it doesn't appeal to them or... Um, believe that I have to work in the news business because I have to tell Americans what to think. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I am on a mission from Gaia, not God, 
to tell people to embrace the good Lord progressivism and to, you know, right. vote for Democrats all the time. And that's the kind of people who are not one gravitate to it or who are probably most likely to stick with it in what can be a very tumultuous industry. Yeah. Yeah. And just seeing the unhinged behavior over this weekend. I mean, it, like as somebody who yeah, really yeah. does not hold these people, I, I, I've, I've little to no respect for these people, what they do professionally. Okay. I, I'm not saying I hate them. I don't hate anybody. God bless them. I hope they all live to 120, but like, I, I do not respect what these people do for a living and just watching. I, it, it, they're, they're so far removed from the way normal Americans live mm. their lives. I mean, their, their reality is, so divorced from actual reality. <laughs> they're, they're hosting yeah. these Twitter meetings, Twitter spaces, crying about, twi- I mean, just like, t- you know, wailing and gnashing of teeth about Donald Trump's, the former president's Twitter account being unbanned. It's like, you guys, yeah. like, people are worried about I, filling up their gas tank, man. Like, a, a, a mm-hmm. ground beef is eight fifty a pound. Like, what? Do you really think that Butter, people Butter, eggs, all this yes. stuff. Yeah, all the like, basics People are, just are... don't care. If tr- who no. bought Twitter? Like they, they just know Elon Musk maybe for being the Tesla guy or the SpaceX guy, mm. and oh yeah, he's that rich guy from South Africa. Like no, but he's the guy care. shooting sports cars into space. <laughs> yeah, you know. they they just don't care about Trump's Twitter account or anybody. Like they just don't. I, as much as I I chuckle at the Babylon Bee, they don't care about the Babylon Bee. Like it's like it's not like this is not a part of your average voter's life. Yeah, I, I also wonder how much. Um, the pandemic was bad for us in a whole lot of ways, but one of them was it lived, you know, it, you know, for at least a long stretch, we could not interact with each other face to face. We had to do everything over zoom and all kind of stuff. And I think people started living more of their lives through their phone. Yeah. They actually, you know, social media became a much more important part of their, um, sense of worth, self-worth and value and, and all that stuff. And, and obviously how many Twitter followers they have and who's retweeting them. And who liked their tweets? All that became real, like probably an unbelievably unhealthy amount of their self-esteem became wrapped up in this. Yeah. So along comes Elon Musk, who's like, you know, who clearly is kind of, I don't want to say making it up as he goes along, but let's just say experimenting as he goes along. Because at one point he said there was going to be there some his version of the Truth and Safety Commission, <clears throat> and that tweet that that tweet is down. And he's kind of he's clearly improvising. He's you yeah. know, with wacky memes and and <laughs> you know, I'm sure by the way, like when you're experimenting on building a rocket. If Elon has this idea of what if we did the rocket this way? Well, you try it, you see if the rocket works or it doesn't. Twitter people are already using. So you're changing the user experience for people who've been used to it operating a certain way. Even if they were the best ideas in the world, you're going to see people, you know, some people react negatively. Yeah. And they're already, you know, believe that he is this sinister South African uh, anarchist, neo, whatever negative, you know, uh, uh, label you can put on him. They believe he's been sent here to destroy Twitter. By the way, if he did destroy Twitter, I'd miss it, but I also probably would be, you know, less driven to uh, random bouts of anger when, <laughs> uh, you know, Edgelord29031 tells me I'm an idiot. And I'm like, who the hell are you to tell me an idiot, Edgelord29301? You know, this shouldn't bother me as much, but it does. And I think everybody, anybody, on the one hand, you have to have a thick skin in this business. Anybody who tells you it really doesn't bother them, I'm surprised. I, I don't think anyone enjoys being called an idiot by somebody who they don't think is all that important. Yeah. And, you know, so I think it kind of, it's just this exacerbating factor of anger and depression and anxiety and, and social isolation and all that kind of stuff. So if this all works terribly for Elon Musk and he destroys Twitter, 
we may that may be the greatest gift he can possibly give us. <laughs> I, I don't know how much uh, how much Musk is valued at these days, but I don't care if he has a trillion dollars. You don't pay forty four billion for something if you're intending to destroy it. I mean, I'm sure. Yeah. No, absolutely. He, I, that's not the plan, right? <laughs> yeah, and, but he's also the kind of guy who, like, if it he doesn't seem. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I know you're right. I think he would much rather it succeed than it fail. But he clearly doesn't worry about like if if it's true that all the liberals are going off to Mastodon, and by Fair the enough. way, good job Fair guys on picking an an extinct animal as your slogan, as your title name and slogan and and symbol there. Um, but if you got all of the the whiny hectoring liberals off onto their uh, onto their own you know separate social media platform, God bless you, Elon Musk. That could make it more fun for the rest of us. Oh, so no. you know, what, great. What would what would we do then? <laughs> by, by goodness. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you're right about COVID too. That everybody started living through their phones a lot more. Um, but th- you know that might be that's probably half of the country more generally. Um, that's sure. every that's, ev- that's every journalist though, because you know most yeah. your average person in Ohio still went to work. I mean, there you know unless mm-hmm. unless you have people that work with their hands, they do manual labor or they they're a, a cook or a truck driver. Or whatever. Like these people, they went to work every day. Most journalists started working remotely immediately and haven't gone back to the office. A lot of, I, I you know, I, I, obviously if you work in a newsroom, you have to physically be there. That's an exception. But a lot of these, a lot of writers specifically are still working from home now. Like they still haven't, you know, th- almost three years later, haven't gone back to the office. So it's like, you know, yes, it changed Americans' lives generally for all of us, COVID did. But if you're a journalist, it you you never looked back. I mean, you you still you still don't interact with anybody. You still work from home. You still are wearing two masks alone in your car. I mean, you're so far removed when everybody else is. I mean, yeah. You know, here in Toledo, Ohio, I haven't seen anybody wearing a mask in a year. Yeah. I mean, it's like it just doesn't mm. exist. I, you know, there's no. We've been back to normal. We went back to normal. At least me and my friends and family almost immediately. You know, summer 2020, and mm-hmm. that I think most people did as well. And that, that's just not. That hasn't been the life experience of American journalists, so they just they're so mm. far removed from from your average voter. Uh, but I, I want to go back a couple weeks to the midterms. It's still relevant because mm. they're still apparently counting votes in California. <laughs> the election is not over yeah. yet. But uh, I, I want to get your take on who should shoulder the blame for the GOP's disastrous performance. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I missed this one bad. I, I predicted 35 and three, <laughs> you know, and, and then a bunch of the, yeah. gov- the, a bunch of the gubernatorial races to go our way as well. So, you know, I, I took my lumps. I was wrong. I apologize. <laughs> I really did not read the room there. Um, but watching the debate between, you know, the conservatives or the more establishment GOP and the populist nationalist types, I agree with everyone. <laughs> like, that's the thing. I, I don't think that these things are mutually exclusive. I, yeah. I agree with everyone. The folks who blame Trump for endorsing bad candidates, being generally toxic to a majority of voters, for raising a ton of money, refusing to spend it on the candidates he, he dragged through these primaries. I agree with all of that. I, I agree that he shoulders a lot of that blame. For the Trump people blaming McConnell and the GOP establishment, you know, Mitch pulled $10 million from Blake Masters and then— used it in Alaska to attack the more Trump candidate or, or whatever. I agree that's bad. I agree with them that the GOP hasn't really laid out a compelling message. You know, like, look at Joe Biden. He's bad. He spends too much money. I agree. That's enough for me. <laughs> but, but it, yeah. you know, if you don't 
work in politics, maybe that's not enough for a lot of voters. I agree. So it's like I agree with both sides. I, I you know, I think there's plenty of blame to go around no matter where you're coming, what, what angle you're taking here. But um, kind of where what was your initial reaction day after? Like, man, mm. we, they, who, who, who do you think should shoulder most of the blame for? The, I mean, this is a disaster. I mean, we're only going to hold the house yeah. by what, three, four seats. I mean, yeah. that is. You know, we're going to probably yeah. get them lose this this Georgia uh, runoff as well. You know, we're going to maybe be down a, a senator. So it is a it, unmitigated disaster, whatever way you look at it. Yeah. So the first thing is I, I concur with that, that, you know, grim assessment that even if somebody wants to say, well, we won the House. OK, but if you look at, you know, not just in the polling before the election, but if you look at the exit polls, people actually showed up on Election Day. Joe Biden's approval rating was really low. People really were upset with the state of the economy. People really were primarily concerned with inflation. All of those indicators that made you and me look at it and say, oh, this looks like it's going to be a good Republican year, were in place. The country was not happy or not thrilled with Democrats. It was right. in a throw-the-bums-out mood, except they looked at the Republican alternative and said, eh, nope, not buying it. I'll stick with this, these Democrats. And yeah. that is a phenomenal failure. I, I would put it first and foremost at Trump, at Trump's feet, because um, the funny thing is, is like when you, when you go through these primaries, look, J.D. Vance did a fine job. Ohio is a fairly it, it used to be a, a purple or swing state. It's now a pretty darn solid Republican state. Yeah, I have heard interesting quite people asking if you put J.D. Vance in Arizona and you put Blake Masters in Ohio, would you have different results or would you have the same results? And I'm sneak. My sneaking suspicion is, is that. J.D. Vance was a good, better candidate than Blake Masters, running in a much better state for Republicans. Well, he and also he became yeah. a better candidate. He didn't start off as, as a good True. candidate at all. Yeah. You know, he was talking about he essentially sounded like he was running Blake Masters campaign in Arizona. He was talking about yeah. the southern border. He was talking yeah. about breaking up Amazon. He was talking about all these like pet Donald Trump project kind of thing. Now, I mean, not it's not that I don't care about securing the southern border. I do. But yeah, look at a map. Is... Look at a map. Some, somebody sat J.D. Vance down with a map of the United States, the continental United States. And he's like, where are you right now, sir? <laughs> you are in Ohio. Can you mm -hmm. please start talking about things that Ohioans care about? And he right around August yeah. or so, he did that. And he changed his campaign strategy. Yeah. He started talking about Joe Biden, just sticking it to Joe Biden, talking about inflation, talking about the price of gas and food and everything else. And he ended up winning by, what, seven points or something like that. Still underperformed. Yeah. DeWine by 18 points or something astronomical. But, um, you know, he he turned himself into a good candidate because somebody got in his ear and said, J.D., you you have to change the correct course here. And uh, I, he was the only yeah. one of these nationalist type candidates that did that. The rest of them, you know, Balduck didn't. Masters didn't. They, they stayed the course and they, they paid the price. Yeah. One of the things that, you know, made these Trump picks stand out is that almost all of them, not all, but a big chunk of them were first time candidates. Yeah. And campaigning, I, I understand the appeal of outsiders, but campaigning is a skill. Yeah. And it takes time to kind of, you know, work out your kinks and, and get to the, you know, figure out how to connect with people, how to work a room, how to work a crowd. And you just point out, you know, J.D. Vance got better at it. I don't think that Blake Masters did. Um, one of the great, you know, like you can look at the other things. Also, each one of these picks brought a certain amount of baggage by not being a tradition, you know, Republican state attorney general or Republican state legislator or something. Met, people were surprised Mehmet Oz was a Republican. 
Yeah. And according to the focus group testing of the Fetterman campaign, there's a reason they kept hammering on him not being from Pennsylvania and the idea that he was from New Jersey. The idea that he's not from here. He's not one of us. He doesn't really understand you. Yeah. And in the end, that probably was a key factor in what, you know, it was within three. It wasn't a blowout. After the primary, it looked like it was going to be a blowout. So I'll give Oz a little bit of credit for, for fighting back from that. But you sit there and wonder if you'd nominated somebody who was indisputably from the state of Pennsylvania up against a candidate who literally was off the trail for three months. That was the other thing was how, how Oz did not press his advantage when he had the strongest advantage. Yeah. Um, that, you know, is, is deeply frustrating. Uh, the fact that Republicans could not win in Nevada when uh, Adam Laxalt was ahead almost the entire time. And he was, I know the Democrats. He was a very strong. Good. He was a very strong candidate too. Yeah, Laxalt and was one of the few candidates you could say united that Trump side and that establishment yeah. side. Um, I guess I, I put a lot of the blame at Trump, but I do think that folks like me have to recognize he's not the only problem. Joe O'Day was the Senate candidate in Colorado. Yep. He was. You know, anti-Trump, arguably. He was very much not a Trump, and Trump and he had gone back and forth with, you know, messages and such. O'Day lost by like 11 or 12 points. It was yeah. not close. And yeah. now that you could say he did a little better than the self-described MAGA candidate in the gubernatorial race out in Colorado. She lost by 16 points. But that kind of – there is no – it's not like you wave the magic wand, Trump disappears, and suddenly Republicans will be competitive everywhere. Yeah. The Republican brand has some real, you know, Trump probably helped us, the GOP in like that upper Midwest, some of those blue collar voters. But man, did he hurt them among suburbanites. And you saw it in places like Colorado. You saw it in these house races in uh, Virginia where like there were three competitive ones. And I was like, OK, well, if they get one, it's an OK, yeah, eh, OK, nothing special. If they get two, then you're having a pretty good wave year. And if they could win three, uh, then, you know, Katie bar the door. This is a huge wave year. Well, they won one of them. And it was a very, very much a swing district that traditionally goes back and forth between the two of them. So, yeah. you know, if you're Republicans, I, you know, on the one hand, you know, whether we like it or not, Trump has decided the presidential primary will begin now. Uh, I actually, I actually think, kind of think in the next couple months it'll quiet down. The DeSantis is not likely to announce until the Florida legislative session is over. And that's going to be like late April, early May, somewhere in there. So you're talking May, June. Yeah. And the other thing is that I don't think there's anyone clamoring for Mike Pompeo or Larry Hogan or, or even Mike, Vice President Mike Pence, who I have a great deal of respect for. But he's in this you know weird nether region of, you know, anybody who supported Trump, does, uh, you know, sees, a lot of people who support Trump see him as a sellout. And everybody who hated Trump sees him as a yes man for four years. So I just the, the Venn diagram of people who like uh, Pence is very small. And I, I kind of feel like, you know, I, my fear is you end up with 2016 of yeah. uh, Trump and then a half dozen to a dozen non-Trump options. Splitting I think in vote. a one-on-one yeah. battle. Yeah. Yeah. On a one-on-one battle, DeSantis has a chance of beating Trump. I don't think it's a guarantee. I think I'd put it probably around 50-50. Um, but, you know, there's a reason they run races and, it'll be, you know, it'll be interesting to see how these guys shake out. Um, I do think it is very unusual to have, other than two-term president. It's very weird to have someone dominate American politics for an eight-year stretch. Yeah. And we are now in coming up on, you know, Trump came down the escalator middle of 2015. And I kind of wonder if Americans are just, you know, tired of it. That, that like, he brings the circus. He brings a, a great deal of baggage. There are a lot of people who say to me, like, I supported his policies. I supported, you know, they liked a lot. They like what Trump got done. Right. They didn't like everything Trump said and did, and particularly the post-election, I won, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, January 6th nonsense. And they kind of just want 
Is there anybody who can give me the good parts of Trump without all the bad parts of Trump? And if DeSantis can say, yes, I can deliver for you and I won't give you constant aggravation and constant headaches and a constant sense of, you know, ranting about what people are saying about me on cable news and stuff like that, then I think, you know, DeSantis has a really good chance to win. But that's why they hold these primaries. You mean, you know, if there's a candidate out there who could turn a 30,000 vote victory into 1.6 million in four years, who could win? Yes, something like that. Yeah, Palm yeah. Beach County, Miami-Dade County, Duval County, who could pass legislation to, to protect children from the predations of teachers unions, who could, you know, if only there were a man out there. If only Republicans had a better yeah. option than Trump. It's like, guys, DeSantis has already done it. And that's the thing, like, yeah. 2016 was its own animal because it was the Wild West. Everybody ran. Everybody had a case that they could make. You know, like Ted, Ted Cruz went for, like, the Christian conservative angle. Trump went for the populist uprising angle. There was, like, a John Kasich who drives me crazy. But, you know, he was, like, yeah. a, the moderate Republican who was a somewhat successful governor, you know, at least from certain perspectives. Son of the mailman. Son of a mailman, you know, that's... It's a qualifier. And Marco Rubio, all the all these even like a Carly Fiorino or whatever the heck her name was. There's all these there's like a you know, a group, a diverse group of people from different backgrounds that all thought that they were the, the man for the job. And but the thing is, like, we know it, the stage is set already. Like it it is yeah. like man, politics has not changed much since the times of Caesar and Pompey, okay, or King David choosing not to kill Saul when he had him where he wanted him in the cave. I mean, it's just, it's it's not complicated. It's the old lion wants to retain power. The young lion thinks he's got what it takes to kill him. And it, politics mm. hasn't changed much in 5,000 years. you got to kill the king to be the king. Okay? So I just don't, and we yeah. know who we know who the players are. They're right there in front of us. Pence has no constituency. Nikki Haley mm. has less than no constituency. <laughs> like, she, there's not, it's not, there's no path to Nikki yeah. Haley getting more than one or two percent in Iowa. There's no path for Larry Hogan to do anything. Chris Christie had a moment ten years ago that is long gone. One of the mm. most bizarre stories in modern American politics is the rise and fall of Chris Christie. But it's like yeah. I, I understand that if you pay a consultant to tell you things you want to hear, they will tell you that you should also pay them next month as well. <laughs> so, like, I get that. I, I, that, that is, I suspect, you know, a, a big factor in this. That but Larry Hogan isn't an <laughs> every, idiot. Every one of these guys looks in the mirror and sees a, a president staring back at them. And somebody who says, yes, you are the person, the country <laughs> needs you, and I'm the man who can get you there. Of course people want to listen to that. You know, people are receptive yeah. to that message. But it's... It's so clear the political environment that we're in and are going to be in the next couple of years. It's DeSantis versus Trump. Yeah. And yeah. everybody. The great, I, I, you could make the argument that a bunch of these figures are effectively running as vice to be vice president for one of the two, most likely DeSantis, right? For a, a Nikki Haley type. The irony is that the better these people do, if they hang around to Iowa, if they hang around to New Haven, presuming, of course, we have the usual primary structure the way we've right. had in the past. But if the longer they hang around, the less likely it is that DeSantis is in a position to pick a running mate by being the nomination. So if these folks want to go out to the Iowa State Fair and show that they could be a strong running mate, fine. But once it starts counting things, I, I think you're going to see much less patience from, you know, the conservative media, from folks like from, you know, I, I can't speak on behalf of my colleagues, but I've always hated the 20 candidate fields. I've always yeah. hated the people who are running book tours with, you know, in, 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 in the form of a presidential campaign. 
Um, and my attitude would be, if you're not, if you're not at two percent, get out, and, yeah. I, and, that, and that'll rise quickly. It'll be, yeah. you know, if you're not at ten percent, get out. Um, stop I mean, dividing the field in a bunch of different ways. It, I mean, I, I don't want anybody to run besides DeSantis because I don't want vote splitting, and I we I believe we need DeSantis to beat Trump in this primary. I think it's, you know, and I I don't dislike Trump for the same reasons you do. I don't really. I just look at politics from a much more cynical position than you, Jim. I don't trust any of these idiots. And so with Trump, it's like I don't care about the the. He's a huge jerk. I don't care. Anybody who's trying to steal my money at gunpoint is a jerk. So like Trump, mm-hmm. Trump's mean tweets is the least of his problems. I don't care about January sixth. I don't care. I'm not a big fan of democracy to begin with, so I don't care about the whole lying about who won the election or all that. It's just stupid and childish, but it's not particularly offensive. I don't like Trump because he cannot win. He cannot win a national election. It is impossible. And I, I, you should see my inbox <laughs> when I say stuff like this. The, the audience hates it. There's so many people that are, are loyal to Trump. And I keep having to remind them, Trump isn't loyal to you. He is just a politician. I don't know why you are, you are showing this man loyalty. He doesn't know who you are. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about your kids. He does not care. He doesn't even care about the country. He just cares about his own fame and power and, and whatnot. And we, he cannot. There is no path. And if somebody can can write a compelling article explaining why I'm wrong, I'm all ears. But how it's not realistic that Donald Trump could perform better in 2024 than he did in 2020. It's there, it, the path to that happening does not exist. Joe Biden is essentially a dead man with a 35 percent approval rating and his party just cleaned house. OK, like it's not going to mm. it doesn't matter. If inflation is 30 percent, we're turning into Venezuela. It's just not going to happen. Trump is that toxic with the suburbs, with white women, with blacks. It's just not going to happen for Trump. And for that purpose, DeSantis has to be the guy. I, I, I think people on the right just have to pledge their sword to DeSantis. I mean, he's the he is the path forward to right wing victories in the next decade. It's not Trump. So therefore, Trump has to be stopped. I mean, it's it's. It's just a two plus two is four kind of kind of thing for me. Like it's not has nothing to do with the man himself. He just cannot beat Joe Biden. And honestly, I think he might be the only Republican that could lose to Joe Biden because I mean, 80 doesn't look great on the man. I doubt that 82 is going to look any better. Um, it, but Trump is just not the guy. He's just not the guy. It, yeah. There is no path forward to victory for this guy. I would agree about 95 to 98 percent of everything you just said. I, I do think that there is a chance that Biden, uh, that you, if, if Trump gets the nomination, he's extraordinarily likely to lose. But a lot of people felt the same way in 2016. And there is that slim chance that Biden, under a Biden administration, <laughs> you said the economy's bad. God knows how Russia, Ukraine's shake, gonna shake out. China and Taiwan, there are enough X factors. There are enough things that are unknown that by the fall of 2024, you know, given a choice between Trump and Biden, I find it, you know, unlikely but not inconceivable that the public would say, all right, let's go with Trump again. Um, I, I wouldn't, if I'm a Republican, I don't want to bet on that. That doesn't strike me as a good bet. That's maybe a one in 10 chance, one in five chance. But the thing is, Democrat, like, you know, one of the reasons Democrats ended up with the Trump presidency is they were so convinced Trump was the easiest to beat that I, I sneak and suspect that, you know, if it comes down to Trump versus DeSantis, you will see a lot of Democrats subtly and not so subtly doing what they can to try to get Trump nominated again. And as we, you know, like 2016 was this grand demonstration of hubris, this grand demonstration of if you, you know, choose the form of your destroyer from Ghostbusters, you know, 
Uh, now, we thought we'd see the same thing this cycle, that at least some of the candidates that Democrats spent money on trying to elect the meddling in the primaries were going to win. All of them lost. All of them lost. Which, you know, Every, um, they, I, didn't, and they didn't support Kari Lake financially, but they did issue press releases yep. hitting her opponent during that key moment in the primaries. Right now, it looks like Kari Lake has lost. <clears throat> I know there's frustration over the uh, printer ink used at some of them, but at this point, there's little evidence to think that they're going to be able to prove enough people were unable to vote in order to have made that 17,000 vote difference. So look, Democrats will look at this and say, ah, okay, meddling in Republican primaries works. Yeah. The end justifies the means. We will be just fine. We should keep doing this. And Trump is less electable than, than that. I just figure it's sooner or later. Yeah, we, we've seen it backfire on them before. It wouldn't shock me if it backfired on them again, because you, know, you never know what Biden's going to go out and say. And, you know, oh, you know, you see these biracial couples in commercials. And <laughs> like, he just rambles yeah. crazy things. And it's entirely possible that come November 2024, he'd have some really bad one. And Americans would just say, OK, we just can't do this anymore and go with whatever the alternative is. But as a Republican, I would not want to make that my strategy. I mean, the fact that Democrats are batting a thousand with their primary meddling. That should scare yeah. the crap out of everybody on the right. That should scare the crap we out of the like, Republicans don't have to fall for this. Like, you, you, we can blame Democrats. They just, I think that is a remarkably cynical and remarkably bad. And you, you can't say these guys are a threat for democracy, but we're going to spend millions to try to elect them. But then also, like, if you're a Republican and you see Democrats running ads to promote somebody, <clears throat> that should be a red flag to you. That should really warn you that, wait a minute. Democrats can't wait to take on this person in the general election. Maybe they're more flawed than I think they are. So, you know. Yeah. Another fascinating point. Um, I'm, I'm working on an article to this effect right now. But uh, one thing that was fascinating on the right and the left. COVID lockdowns did not matter at all mm. in these midterms. And that is, as a libertarian, that is extremely disturbing. We saw the greatest expansion of government power since Woodrow Wilson, um, mm. and nobody was punished. I mean, you know, Hochul in, in New York, Gretchen Whitmer, even on the Republican side, Mike DeWine, who locked my state down for a year, uh, he was just as bad as some of these. He didn't send, he didn't slaughter old people in, in nursing homes like some of the Democrats did. Uh, I mean, not that that's a laughing matter, but he's got that going for him. Yeah, he he doesn't have the he doesn't have the yeah. the body count that some of these other governors have, but he yeah. was he was extraordinarily authoritarian. None of these governors were punished at all for locking down millions of people at gunpoint, for sending cops to arrest pastors for the crime of preaching the gospel. For all of these wicked things, you know, Gretchen Whitmer didn't let you plant a garden, wouldn't let you sit in a boat in the middle of Lake Michigan by yourself. I mean, none of these people were held to account at all. Yeah, I, look, I think one of, oh, we forgot to mention one of the reasons Republicans felt good about 2022 was that 2021 seemed like it was going to be it was a really good year for Republicans. They won the governorship and uh, lieutenant governorship and uh, attorney general's races in my home state of Virginia. Yeah. Uh, came really close in New Jersey, and all of those other scattered races across the country for local races went very well for Republicans. <laughs> um, you could even say at the time, Eric Adams being elected mayor of New York City seemed like a step in the right direction because he was a former cop and was perceived to be tougher on crime. I think his record since then shows that was <laughs> yeah. much more hype than uh, right. than reality. But you looked at that, you're like, okay, now, the thing is, what happened? What's the difference between November 2021 and November 2022? Well, a year in which, you know, pretty much since the Omicron wave 
COVID-19's impact on American life faded away to near nothingness. You, as you mentioned, you don't see masks in your neck of the woods anymore. I see a little bit here in Northern Virginia, but you're right. It's just, you know, even on the issue of education, the typical, when Republicans were talking about education, they were talking much more about curriculum in schools and much less about these bastards kept your kids home from school for a year, in some cases more than a year, yeah. and your kid is now a year behind in their learning because of it. I might have preferred to emphasize that, but maybe the message is, is that if it's not fresh in voters' minds, they'll move on to other issues and have other concerns. And look, it's not like the country didn't have other problems. Right. Obviously, inflation is front and center in people's minds, gas prices, grocery prices. At some point, as a Republican, you have to pick which candidate you're going to emphasize. And it wouldn't surprise me if they said COVID-19 was fading into the rearview mirror of people. But having said that, yeah, that was really like, Look, you know, we're, there's going to be no reckoning for the policies during the COVID-19 yeah. pandemic. And at this point, it doesn't look like there's going to be that much of an intense further investigation into the origins of COVID-19. Hey, why would we need to know how this thing started? Right. It's like Gretchen Whitmer is like a for the entire pandemic was essentially a cartoon villain. <laughs> I mean, she was like, a, yeah. if she's like, it, it, I mean, if, if she didn't exist, Republicans would have to invent this woman. She's creepy looking. She she speaks as like a tyrant. I mean, she, it's like right out of something, mm. the Mussolini playbook. I mean, she's like a- A, a truly... Disney villainess, yes. Yes. And, and Kathy Hockle, by the way, very similar. You know, I, I, when I finally watched Kathy Hockle on the stump and in some of those debates- she was terrible. terrible. Uh, you can see why this was, you know. What's your you line, Jim? A whir really... whirling, whirling dervish of uh, political charisma? Raw political <laughs> charisma, yes, to use my uh, <laughs> my preferred phrase. And, you know, look, you know, credit words do. Lee Zeldin did be much better than the typical Republican. Um, certainly made the score respectable by, by, based on historical standards. But, you know, horseshoes and hand grenades are, are the only ones that are, you know, close counts. And I think if you're a Republican— if you couldn't beat a, a non-elected, non-incumbent, appointed Democrat with this kind of issue environment, are you ever going to beat them? And yeah. if you're never going to beat them, why not move to Florida? Move to why, Florida. why are you yeah. still in that state? You know, yeah. You know, yeah. What's keeping you there? I, you know, there's a lot of great places in New York, but, you know, yeah. Jim, my brother, thanks for doing this, man. Let's do it again soon. Where can everybody uh, subscribe to The Morning Jolt? Check out your podcast. Buy uh, any number of your books that are available now. Uh, give us all the plugs. Yeah. Sure. Uh, well, I write the Morning Jolt newsletter for National Review every weekday morning. Um, you can find the subscription there at nationalreview.com. I write in the corner usually a couple, you know, a couple times a day or uh, quite a few times a week. Um, I'm at Twitter at Jim Garrity, um, and as I mentioned, I'm writing a little more frequently for the Washington Post, which is why I think Taylor Lorenz is a perfectly fine human <laughs> being, and no one should ever say anything mean about her. And uh, so that 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 will be sporadically as 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 inspiration strikes, you'll see me there. So you have to check there, you know, check there every day. See if I'm there. And if I'm not, you can click off. Absolutely. Everybody follow Jim. He's great. That's all I got for today. I'm Brady Leonard. I'll be back on Wednesday. No gimmicks. <laughs>